We're back in John chapter 12. We are going to pick up where we left off today. We, we covered verses 34 through 40, and tonight we set our attention on verses 41 through 43. Give you a second to find that, although it shouldn't be too hard. We, you know where we're going to be. And uh, let's read these verses tonight. What do you say? It says, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Just a few verses we read tonight, but filled with wonderful truths, hard truths, as this is the Word of God. So before we delve into these verses and what is in view, let's, let's pray that God would guide us in our understanding. Our Heavenly Father, Hallowed be your name. As you are holy, you are awesome. And Father, I pray that you would let us tonight see you high and lifted up more than we ever have in our lives. That we would be in awe of you when we leave tonight more than we ever have been in our entire lives. Father, I pray that you would Speak truth to us tonight. I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive the word. And Lord, that you would bring about the desired effect that you desire. Father, I pray for wisdom and understanding and, and clarity of, of thought tonight as we begin to preach and teach your word. We love you. We thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us by your merciful hand. So tonight, Lord, we pray again for help. And Lord, let our hearts be set upon you. And Lord, let us come with a heart that says you must increase and we must decrease. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We turn our attention to verse 41 tonight. And we have known that in the verses that we read this morning that we see that John here is going back to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and he quotes two passages of Scripture from the book of Isaiah to bring to pass and to fulfill, to show the fulfillment of this in this moment here where Christ is about to die. The first reference that he made from the Old Testament was Isaiah 53, verse 1, Lord who has believed our report and to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. And then he goes into verse 40, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. He has blinded their eyes, and he has hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. We know the reason of that hardening, because the cross was a necessity for the redemptive plan that God had ordained before the world was. And now we come to verse 41, and we have another reference to the prophet Isaiah. He says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. 
we begin to ask ourselves, where in the world, in the Bible, do we find that Isaiah saw Christ? Well, he's already quoted Isaiah chapter 6 as a clue to which we may find the answer to this. And I believe we do find the answer to where Isaiah saw Christ. We find it in the same chapter that he's already referenced here about the hardening and the blinding. So tonight we set our attention on Isaiah chapter 6 to find this time where Isaiah would have seen the glory of Jesus. And we talked about it today. Well, we say, well, Isaiah wasn't, or Jesus wasn't mentioned in the Old Testament. Oh, he's all through the Old Testament. If we know where to look and we know how to interpret the Old Testament, we know he's everywhere. But where can we find this section of Scripture where Isaiah saw Christ? Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6 and begin to work through these verses because these are some amazing verses that we find in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And he called out, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. While the temple was filling with smoke, then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, from, away and your sin is forgiven. And then we go right into the verses that we covered this morning. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? You'll notice that it's us. Speaking of the triune nature of God. Then I said, Here, here am I. Send me. This is Isaiah saying that. He said, Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So this is the same passage of Scripture that we quoted today of the hardening, the fulfillment of that hardening upon the people of Israel in the time of Christ and before His crucifixion. So I believe that we see that in the first part of Isaiah chapter 6, that Isaiah sees the pre-incarnate Christ. He sees Jesus high and lifted up and high and exalted upon the throne. So let's begin to look through this, if we may. He says, In the year King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings, and then what he's going to go through and he's going to describe the duties of the six wings. And we begin to see the holy, majestic, 
splendor of Christ, of our eternal God. As we begin to look at these seraphim, we must realize that these seraphim were created to be in the presence of God. They were designed for this purpose, for this duty. And look about the description that we find. He says that each having six wings, with two he covered his face. We know that the glory, the, rad the radiance and the majesty of God is un it's unfathomable. We, we see that in the Old Testament when Moses just wanted to see a glimpse of the glory of God, he said, show me your glory. And he says, Moses, I can't do that. If I so showed you my full radiance and the full weight of my glory, you would die. But I'll hide you in the rock. And you'll see a fleeting glance of, of this manifestation of who I am. And Moses sees this fleeting glance of God pass by. And what happens? He changes his life. It's, it's amazing. He sees the glory of God. We know that, that when he sees this glory of God, that he comes down, his face is glowing. Even in another time when he sees the glory of God, that he has to veil his face because in this fleeting glance of who God is in his glory, his face is glowing with the radiance and the majesty of God. And here these angels who are designed and created to be in the presence of God have their eyes covered because of the radiance of His glory, the true majesty of His being. You know, that's one of the greatest things that we can think about as Christians. Here, if we can't see the true weight of His glory, we can't see His true being in this world and in this life because of sin. But do you remember one of the Beatitudes? The promise that we have, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see him as he is. In all of his glory, in all of his splendor, in his true being, we as these creatures have been shown mercy, we will see him as he is. What an honor, what a privilege that is almost unimaginable to our finite minds to see the eternal God in his true being as he is one day. But here these seraphim, in the presence of God, have their eyes covered because of the radiant glory and the holiness of God. And it says, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. Not only did we see Moses that could not look directly on the glory of God, but we also know that Moses came to a burning bush one day and we know that that voice out of the burning bush was Yahweh, which we know that Jesus will use to describe himself and declare that he is Yahweh. That's the I means, ego I means. But what did that voice say out of that burning bush when Moses came? Moses, take off your sandals because the place, the ground that you're standing on is what? It's holy ground. And here, what holy ground it would be that these seraphim in the glory and the presence of God would have their wings covering their feet as they were in the presence and on the holy ground before the eternal God in all His majesty. And here it says that with two they flew, showing that their service, it would be that their wings would be used for service for Him to, to be at His beck and call and whatever He would command them to do, they would go because they were created for His glory. 
And then we find in verse 3, it says, And one called out to another and said, This is quite the verse. It's quite the verse here. You may get tired of hearing this, but we have have to say this. We We can't just go past this verse and not just talk about it. Just a brief moment. We know that there is significance in a twofold repetition of words. We have labored that point where we see where God says, truly, truly. That means take note and listen. We talked about that a few uh, Wednesday nights ago with the double repetition of names, the intimacy of that. It's an important thing. A twofold repetition is important. But a threefold repetition gets our attention even more. It rises to the place of the utmost importance. And the thing I always remember R.C. saying that I'll never forget. So many people think we live in a world today, if I said to you that God is, and then just fill in the blank, they'll go to first John, or they'll go to, to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, and it'll say that God is love. And amen, he is. God is love. But he's also merciful. He's also a God of wrath. He's also a God of justice. And of all the attributes that gets raised to describe who God is, R.C. would say this. These angels around the throne are not saying God is love, love, love. And they're not saying that he is merciful, 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 although he is. But do you know what? The attribute that makes God, God, you see it. It's what is being declared around the throne by these seraphim whose eyes are covered, whose feet are covered. And this is the attribute that makes God, God. They say he is holy, holy, holy. That word means other than. There's two, there's a primary and there's a secondary meaning. The one we know is free of sin and and pure. Yes, that is the meaning of holy. But the primary meaning of that word is that he's other than. He's separate than. He's not like anything or anyone that we know. He is not on anyone's level because he's so higher. There's such a gap between man and who he is. There's such a gap between created angels and him. There's no one who compares. He is holy. He's other than. And the way that we always describe this is this. All of his other attributes flow from his holiness. Because do you know anyone else that is all-knowing, that is omniscient? And the answer is absolutely no. That's because he's other than. He's holy. He's the only one who is all-knowing because he's holy. Do you know anyone else that is omnipresent? That the full weight and the, 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 the full presence of his being is everywhere in every particle and every uh, inch of this universe uh, at the same time. Do you know anyone else that's omnipresent? But he is because he's holy. He's other than. You could go down through the lists of who he is, that he's immutable. Are you unchanging? You surely haven't changed your mind this week at all. You're truly the same as you were a year ago. No, no, no. He's the only one who can say that he's forever the same. Why? Because he's holy. Can you raise yourself from the dead? 
can't do that because you are not God. He is holy. Do you not have a beginning? Do you have life in yourself? You don't, and neither do I, because God is holy. That's the point of what he's saying. He is other than, and the cry of the seraphim around his throne is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, this is so important. Isaiah truly understands who he is. Truly understands how unworthy he is, how unclean he is when he truly sees who God is. He sees God. He sees this pre-incarnate Christ lifted up. He sees this seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy. And what is his response to the holiness of God? Woe unto me. Who am I in comparison to this holy God, to this eternal God? Who am I? And he begins to say, woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I have lived among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this is not just specific to Isaiah. We find this as the response to the holiness of God throughout Scripture. When people truly begin to feel the weight of who He is, it begins to bring us to that place we talked about today where we understand that He must increase and we must decrease. Do you remember when Jesus came and He was going to call Peter unto Himself and they were cleaning their nets, and he came and he got in Peter's boat. Do you remember that? And they had fished all night. These professional fishermen, and they had fished all night, and they were unsuccessful. And here comes Jesus. And don't, for, don't, don't lose sight of this, because I think this is an important part of the story too. They had fished all night, because in that time, that fishing at night was the best way to catch the fish. And at that area to which they were fishing, they would know that the best time to catch fish was at night, and they would know the best place to catch fish was in the shallow water up by the shore. And they had done that all night and hadn't caught a doggone thing. And they were cleaning their nets, and here comes Jesus. And don't miss this clue. He says, let's go to the deep water in the middle of the day. Because that's the time you shouldn't catch fish. And that's the depth you shouldn't catch fish. But in the deep water in the middle of the day, the nets were filled. Because he is God. And there's nothing impossible for him. And what is the response of Peter? When Jesus begins to tell him, He's going to tell him to leave all he has and follow him. But what is Peter's response? He falls to his knees and he says, I am unclean. I am unworthy to be in your presence. Because once you begin to see how holy he is, you begin to see how unworthy you are. And that's where worship begins. To be sincere. We can find that in other places throughout the Bible. We can go to the mountain of transfiguration where he revealed himself. He showed his glory to them on that day. And what was their response? They were on their face before him. When John sees 
the glorified Christ in Revelation 1, his response is the same. You see, the reason that so many people, I believe, do not truly have an awe of God, do not truly worship God, do not truly understand the depths of salvation and the, the weight of mercy is because they truly do not understand who God is. And only when we begin to understand who He is, how holy He is, can we begin to understand what He's done for us as unworthy, unclean creatures and the praise that He deserves as a result. And then we find that the seraphim flew with a burning coal in His hand which He had taken from the altar with tongs. He touches Isaiah's mouth here, took away the sin of his lips, forgave the sin because Isaiah is getting ready to be sent into service for God. And just in case we need to be reminded of this tonight, I heard it said once that we are, we are tasked with spreading the gospel, but we're not, it's not upon us for the results of the gospel. Because Isaiah here, this prophet of God, we find that after this, this moment where he sees the pre-incarnate Christ, he sees God high and lifted up. Then he it says, I'll go, Lord. Who will go for us? And he says, I'll go. And listen to what he's told. You're going to go and you're going to deliver the message for me to a people that will not hear you. You're going to go to a people and their hearts are going to be hardened and their eyes are going to be blinded. But you go. But wait, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean? But you just told, what did I tell you? Go. It's not up for you for the results. It's up for you to the obedience to which he's called us to go. He's called us to spread the gospel. He's called us to tell the good news. The results are up to God. They're in His hands, upon the sovereign hand of God. Does that rest? But He uses us, and we are the means. And every person we may witness to from the point right now until the time we die, they may never come to the truth of the gospel. But that does not negate our responsibility to go and deliver that message. This is how Isaiah starts his, his ministry. Go. But the people are not going to hear you. But Isaiah went. And we know that's the truth. They did not hear the calls of repentance. And the temple was destroyed. And they were taken into Babylonian captivity. I believe this is where Isaiah saw him. Where he saw Christ. High and lifted up. As the eternal God. You know, I, I know that one of Taylor's favorite sections of Scripture in the Bible is when we come to the ending of John chapter 8. And it says that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Speaking of Christ. And he saw it and he was glad. And you remember their response? You're not even 50 years old yet. How have you seen Abraham? Or how has Abraham seen you? And what does he say? Before Abraham was born... Ego, I me. I am. And you know what? Not only did Abraham see his day and rejoice, 
But I believe Isaiah saw his day, saw him and rejoiced. And you know what else we could say? Before, before Abraham was born was I am. And before Isaiah was born was I am. What a scene that Isaiah would have seen. Holy, holy, holy. You want to grow in your Christian life. You begin to understand the holiness of God. Who He is. He owes us nothing. But we begin to see who He is. He begins to show us who we are. And that's when mercy and grace look even more amazing. These things Isaiah saw because he saw His glory and he spoke of Him. Again, he sees the glory of Christ. He gives this commission that he's going to go to these people that are blinded and hardened. And we know that today that will be finally fulfilled here in these final days of Christ, which would bring way for the Lord of glory to be crucified. So verse 42 says, nevertheless, nevertheless, despite this judicial hardening on the majority of Israel, it says many of the rulers, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And then we find this. Where have we found this threat that, that you would be put out of the synagogue? We go back to John chapter 9. We go back to the chapter about the, the man who was born blind for the glory of God to be revealed. And do you remember when they bring the parents in and they begin to question the parents? And in John chapter 9, verse 22, we find this response. Remember, they said, well, this is our son, but how he now sees, we don't know. He's of age, ask him. They, they blew it off because they were afraid of the Pharisees. And in John chapter 9, verse 22, it says, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. The parents were not going to sit here and be a witness for his, their son because of the fear of the Jews, fear of being put out of the synagogue. And here it says, even though this, this, this judicial hardening that it is upon Israel as the majority, it says that some of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. Can I tell you what you've just read? That verse you've just read has some controversy with it. As you begin to study this out, I mean, I'll, just, I'll just tell you the controversy and we'll dive through this. Not controversy, but there's some difference of opinion here or a difference of interpretation. As I began to come to this and begin to consult some commentaries, I, I, I consulted no short of less than 15 commentaries of people that I felt I could trust and was credible. And there was not a consensus answer. There was people that were in the reform circle that would not agree on these verses. So let's look at them and see what the difference of interpretation is all about. It says, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. Well, what does this word believed mean? Does this mean salvific believing? Or does this mean intellectual believing? We know that the demons believe that he is God, but that's not a salvific believing, right? 
We go back all the way to John chapter 2. And this is after Jesus had cleansed the temple. And we find these passages of Scripture in John chapter 2. In verse 23. It says, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name, observing His signs which He was doing. But Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them, for He knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So you have people here that are believing because of his miracles, believing because of what he's done. But Christ is not entrusting himself to them because he knows the depths of their heart. He knows that they may just be intellectually believing because they're seeing the signs, but they've not been changed at the core of their soul. So here we see that it seems to reference that these people weren't true believers because he wasn't entrusting himself to them because he knew their heart. So there's some that come to this passage in John 12 and they say, well, these are the people who just intellectually believed it. They saw some of the signs. They were believing in him, but they weren't professing in him. So therefore, they truly weren't Christians. There's one view. Some will say, well, maybe they were like you and me. And you say, well, that's what? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been ashamed in your workplace to speak the name of Christ? Have you ever been ashamed to profess that you're a Christian around a certain group of people? Have you ever been ashamed to share the gospel to your family or friends? I believe we've all been in that moment, in that season where we have been ashamed and fearful of the consequences of what happens if we do that. So maybe it could be they truly did believe, but for a moment their faith was so weak that they feared these people in the ruling class that they were in, that they didn't publicly profess it, but they truly believed. Some people say that. So there is this difference of opinion here. But what we do know is this. There cannot be secret Christians. The Bible says in John, or Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that it is profession of Christ unto salvation. You, you can't go all your life and not profess the name of Christ. You cannot do that because you have to profess Him in salvation, that's what Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 10 says. He also tells us that if we're ashamed of him, that he'll be ashamed of us when he comes on that day. So we may have moments of weakness and, and our faith be weak and we, our boldness be shaken. But you can't be a secret Christian all your life. You can't hide from it. You have to come and be bold and make that declaration for Christ. But are there examples of these people who could have been Afraid of the, of the ruling class. They said that even the rulers, so we, these are talking about some of the people of the Sanhedrin that they believed, but they weren't professing. Do we have examples of some people that were maybe in that ruling class that were, um, that were afraid to profess for a moment, but later did? I think we have some clues that that could be the case. So let's look at who we have as an example of that. The first example we have is Joseph of Arimathea. That name may ring a bell to some. Joseph of Arimathea was the one that we're going to find here in these verses. 
in John chapter 19, verses 38 and 39. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. And then we see Nicodemus. We know he was on the Sanhedrin. He was one of the rulers there. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night in John 3, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 800 pounds weight. Then we go to Luke 23, verses 50 through 51, and a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And then we have in Mark 5, 43, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So could this be one who, for a brief moment, was a fearful of the Sanhedrin, was fearful of the rulers, but later we find that his, his courage is there and he begins to profess and he risked this public exposure as a disciple of Christ says he's waiting on the kingdom of God. Some will say, well, that was also Nicodemus. We don't know that for sure. But it would, send, it would tend to believe because it says nevertheless. So we have this hardening upon Israel as a whole, but nevertheless, there was some, there was a remnant who did believe and their faith was weak. But you can't have that faith that is weak to not profess for the majority of your life. You can't have that. You, you have to profess Christ. That profession has to be made into salvation. And we are guilty of this as well. If you went to work tomorrow and you went around, would people know that you're a Christian? Would they know you're a Christian? Or if you told them you're a Christian, they would be very surprised. Are we bold? Are we fearful? Are we like this? How could you be fearful of the Pharisees? How could you be fearful of them? How could, you be, how could we be fearful of the people that we're fearful of? We're so timid sometimes. We're so fearful of what man's response would be to us. We're so fearful of what it may cause. It may cause difficulties. It may cause disruptions. It may cause... We are staying for the, the truth of God. There are moments where we're ashamed and we lack courage and boldness for Christ. There are moments we may be ashamed... However, we cannot go through life like this. We can't do that. We can't be ashamed of Him. In John, Romans 10, 9-10, as I quoted earlier, profession of faith is required. You must confess to salvation. We find, I think, at one point, this was Tim's, one of his favorite verses in the Bible. I don't know if it still is. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. It says this, for, I, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Because look what it says in verse 42. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. What a sad state that is. That we would come and we would want the approval of men more than the approval of the one who the angels cry holy, holy, holy to. I 
Isaiah saw Christ. He spoke of him. And when he sees him high and lifted up, he truly understands how unworthy he is. He sees that Christ is holy to the threefold repetition. But then we have these verses that some people that believed here for this moment were fearful of man. The question that we come to tonight is, why are we fearful of man? Why would we be ashamed of God? The question also arises tonight is this, do we seek the approval of God or man more? If we please God, it really doesn't matter who we displease, does it? As long as we're holding to biblical truths, we may make people mad, we may upset people, but as long as we're pleasing God, what else matters? It really doesn't matter who you displease standing for the truth if God is pleased. But the opposite of true is true, that if we don't please God, then it really doesn't matter who in this world we please. It is God who we are desired to seek and to please. And let us as Christians be bold and courageous in our witness for Christ. It, it let us leave tonight with this, with our heart set that we are going to seek to please God and His approval in all that we do, even at the expense of angry men. Because the approval of God is all that matters. The approval of Him is all that matters. These are packed verses. Isaiah saw Christ. Let that sink in for a moment as we begin to close. Isaiah saw Him high and lifted up. In His glory, the pre-incarnate Christ. Let us contemplate His holiness. And let us contemplate who we are in comparison to His holiness. And when we understand who we serve, let us never seek the approval of men over the approval of God. But let us tonight, as Isaiah saw, that the angels of heaven as they were declaring around the throne, let that be our cry tonight, that we please Him in all that we do. We seek His approval in all we do as we seek the approval of the One who is holy, holy, holy. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we thank you for these verses Lord we thank you for the truth that is found in your word Lord let us begin to think about your holiness even more than we ever have let us see you high and lifted up more than we ever have Lord let our hearts be reminded of your holiness let our souls rejoice in that holiness, but let us also have holy fear of who you are. And Lord, let it drive us to our face in reverence and awe of you. Lord, let us be like Isaiah when we think about your holiness, that 
that we are so unworthy of you. We are so unworthy of anything from your, your hand, let alone salvation and mercy and grace and to, to dwell with you forever. And even more that we would see you as you are in your true being. Father, tonight let us have a heart that is strengthened with boldness. And Lord, let us understand the futile nature of trying to please man. Lord, let us understand that the one we are pleasing is the one whose the very angels that are in his presence can't look upon. The very feet of the angels who are in your presence, they are covered because it's holy ground. And Lord, the wings that they have for service, let us have that same attitude of service and worship and honor for you as we go and do what you've called us to do, as we go and witness the gospel in this world. And Lord, we trust you for the results because you are sovereign and you are holy. Lord, let our hearts desire to be obedient to you, pleasing to you, because you are holy. And we praise you for that. And we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.